Hello and welcome again to Citizens. My name is David. Uh, I do go by DC and I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, so glad to see you and it's always a joy to be able to worship as a church community. And it's my honor to share God's word with us. Uh, we're continuing in our year-long sermon series, uh, Childlike Wonder. Uh, last week, or last couple weeks, we've been in the life of King David, right? The greatest king of Israel, uh, the man after God's own heart. Um, the reason why so many second-generation Korean-American boys were named David is either David or Daniel, and I'm one of them. And understandably, because his story is quite amazing. Uh, God selected him to be king while he was young, uh, unimpressive, small in stature. God chose him to be king. Last week, we saw him, uh, small David, slay the giant Goliath with a sling and a stone, defending God and his people. And so he was an amazing man, right? Humble, courageous, faithful, and bold. You know, so far we've seen uh, what I call the Instagram version of King David, right? The best parts of his life. Uh, you know, the posts that we would all like, uh, things that he's proud of. And you're going to be a little bit puzzled by the, the title of today's message. It's The Good Shepherd. And that's because in a children's uh, book, uh, a children's Bible, you can't have the title as adulterer and murder. And so the title is The Good Shepherd, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, but today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the darkest, messiest, and ugliest moment of King David's life. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm uh, chapter 51. I'll be reading from the ESV, so you can uh, select your translations there. And it's going to be up on the screen behind me for you to follow along. This is a song written by King David as uh, after the prophet Nathan uh, confronted him. So let's give our full attention. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressor your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, so I'll bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper, Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offer offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Let me pray for us and ask God. 
for help. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. Uh, we ask that you will open up our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to receive what you have for us. God, may you comfort us today, may you convict us today, and may you be pleased with our time of worship together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so a lot has happened after David uh, defeated Goliath. His journey to the throne uh, would be extremely difficult. He will first serve in the court of King Saul, the first king of Israel, and he will become a close companion of Saul. Uh, but as David's popularity grew and his following grew, uh, Saul became insanely jealous to the point where he sent his soldiers to kill David. So D David became a fugitive uh, on the run for his life, and it was while he was on the run for his life that the prophet Samuel anointed David to be king. So he was anointed as king, but not king in practice. It was only after King Saul and his sons died on the battlefield against another battle against the Philistines where David would finally become king, but his kingship would be only over the tribe of Judah. Because another one of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, uh, Ish was king over the tribe of Israel. So the kingdom was divided. Uh, a little time has passed, and then Ishbosheth gets assassinated. Now he's gone. Now, finally, David is king over the united tribes of Judah and Israel. He is now king over Israel. And David would make a great king. He successfully led military campaigns. He expanded the borders of Israel. He established Jerusalem to be the capital. And things were going well. It's been quite a journey uh, for David. A lot of ups and downs, triumphs and defeats progress and delays, and now he's at the pinnacle of success and power. And we find out that God would make an everlasting covenant with David to secure his lineage forever. So then it begs the question, what happened? How do we get to this point where we read this agonizing and heart-wrenching confession from King David? We find the answer in 2 Samuel Chapter 11, this is what it says. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, at first glance, we're like, what's, what's the problem here? The kingdom is huge. There's a lot of responsibilities, and King David is delegating. David wasn't where he was supposed to be. One of the primary roles, God-ordained role for a king is to go to battle with his army. And David's not there. Instead, he sends his nephew, Joab, to fight in his stead. We don't know why David stayed back. But there's an important lesson here that contrasts last week's principle. If being faithful to the ordinary and mundane prepares us to face the Goliaths of our lives, a neglect of the ordinary and mundane can put us in a compromising position. You know, relationships don't just fall apart suddenly. It actually happens over time with a simple neglect, not making yourself available, making excuses, not showing up. Right? 
not communicating. These are the practices that require a relationship to be healthy. But if we neglect these things, it can lead to dysfunction. You know, for David, it wasn't being at the you know, wrong place at the wrong time. It was his failure to be at the right place. And this was the first domino that led to what we're about to learn about David. So back at the capital, he decides to take a, a stroll on his roof in the middle of the night. He sees a beautiful woman bathing. He does a double take. And then he asks someone to look into this woman. Who is she? Her name is Bathsheba. And she's married to a man named Uriah who is serving in David's army. He calls for her, brings her into his bedroom, and then he sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. This is not good. And so David comes up with a plan. He sends for Uriah. He calls him off the battlefield and calls him into the palace. And he actually makes small talk with David. And then he sends him home, knowing exactly what he thought Uriah would do after you know, being in the battlefield and being at home, being with his wife. You get what his plan is. But the thing is, Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the entrance of the palace. And when asked why, he says, how can I go home? How can I eat good food? How can I experience the comfort of my wife when my brothers are fighting in the war? This was an honorable man. So David's plan failed. So he keeps Uriah for one more day. And this time, his plan is to get him drunk in hopes that finally, after being drunk, he's going to go home. Again, Uriah doesn't go home. Now David is left with no other option than to send him to the front lines of the battlefield, knowing that he's going to die if he goes there. So he does that. And Uriah dies on the battlefield. How is this God's chosen king? A man after God's own heart? He's an adulterer. He, he tries to cover it up. He's a murderer. How do we reconcile the humble, faithful David who slayed Goliath to this now version of David? It's almost unrecognizable. How are these people the same person? You know, in my experience being in ministry, people would go up to Jane and, and my wife and ask her, hey, is, is DC always like this? And then Jane gives, her, Jane gives like this confusing look, what do, you, what do you mean? Is he always this nice? And then Jane, you know, rolls her eyes like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, she's so honest. Um, you know, see, you guys see a version of me. You know, if I'm presiding maybe 10 minutes, and if I interact with you maybe five minutes after service, and on Sunday like today as I'm preaching, you see, what, a 30, 35 minutes and you kind of put together a perception of who you think I am. If you really want to know who I am, you got to ask Jane. you got to talk to my kids. you got to come over to my house. you got to see me interacting with my family. And then if you get a chance and opportunity to get inside my mind and my heart and actually hear my innermost thoughts, you will actually be confused. You will ask, how can you be so insecure? How can you be so greedy, so hateful, so vengeful? and so prideful, and so wicked. I'm not just saying that this is truly who I am. 
You know, I struggle with my identity. There are inconsistencies in every aspect of my life, in every sphere that I exist in, as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a friend, as a pastor. I lose sight of my calling. I lose sight of God's grace. I lose sight of who I am all the time. And why is this? There's a complex interplay of our experiences of culture and our upbringing and our environment that has shaped who we are today. The things that have formed us, the very things that have formed you and me, are defective, right? Because there's sin everywhere. There's dysfunction everywhere. In culture, in our upbringing, in our relationships. And so the very things that have formed us have deficiencies. And therefore, there's a dissonance that I feel within me. And there's a dissonance that I believe that we all feel deeply. But where does it come from? Where did this originate? You know, if we look back, we see this actually in the garden for the very first time. The very moment that sin entered the world. You know, our modern conception of identity is something that we discover. It's about finding myself. But when we look at God's creation, identity originally wasn't a, a construction. It was a gift given to us and defined for us by God. It was relationship with God that would define everything about our existence. It would give us purpose and inform our relationship with creation and with one another. When Adam and Eve rebelled and ate the forbidden fruit, it disconnected them from that very source of identity. And because of separation from God instead of peace, Harmony, what we see is chaos and dysfunction at every level of our existence. And so Jesus' mission was to restore that identity, to reverse the ill effects of sins by going to the cross, offering forgiveness, and restoring relationship back with God. That's why he came. And so we say faith in Jesus restores this identity, making us God's children. But here's the thing. This renewed identity is to be lived out in a broken world with the persisting reality of sin. It's hard. But because of this, there are three categories that are true for everyone here that identifies as a Christian. And we see God interacting in these three categories throughout Scripture. The first, every Christian here is a saint. You are made new. You are a new creation. You belong to God. And so what God does is he wants to constantly affirm this truth. You are his. You're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter. Secondly, every Christian here, we are sufferers. Sufferers. We live in a fallen world. We will experience injustice, disease, hostility, and hurt from others. But we are called to love our enemies as ourselves and persevere as we navigate through this broken world. Lastly, we are sinners. More often than not, we live outside of God's goodness, outside his laws. We trust in ourselves more than we trust in him. We take matters into our own hands 
And so we're a sinner. And we'll always struggle with sin. And so when we look at King David's life, all three are true of King David. All three are true of us. No one can evade sin. We are all victims and perpetrators. We suffer from greed, pride, hate, envy, jealousy, and lust. We lie, we gossip, and we cheat. We fail to love God with our entire being, and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. There are imperfections and defects in all of us. But I want us to listen very closely, and this may sound weird at first, but even our sins have a good and divine purpose. Our sin, your sin and my sin, I know this sounds weird, but there is a good and divine purpose in it. Because it's meant to break us. It's designed to break us. David is clearly in a bad place. He has lost himself completely. He is broken. But what is his first impulse? Is to conceal his brokenness. See, Adam and Eve... When they first realized that they were naked, what did they do? They hid from God and they made coverings with fig leaves. David does the same. His covering is just more elaborate and actually more wicked. See, instead of allowing the good work of brokenness to take effect, David delays the work of brokenness by attempting to cover it up. You know, living in 2024 in a city like LA, we have a wide variety and a greater selection of the coverings we choose. We hide behind our achievements, our successes. We accumulate bigger and shinier things. I don't think social media helps because it's another form of covering, right? As long as I'm perceived well by others, liked by others, then I must be good. But another thing about social media is we constantly compare. Oh, at least I'm doing better than that person. And so it gives us a false sense of security. Endless options for entertainment, food, drink, unfortunately, drugs as well. It's another form of covering to try and numb ourselves, to escape the, the reality of our ugliness. See, these coverings offer temporary relief at best, but it severely inhibits the work that brokenness seeks to do in our lives. You know, it's only when the prophet Nathan confronts David and declares God's judgment over him that David finally embraces brokenness. You know, a common barrier that we have for spiritual brokenness is in the way that we understand and define Sin. You know, we, I think we think that sin is just breaking some kind of arbitrary law. You know, I've never mourned and grieved over getting a parking ticket. I, I've never mourned over getting a parking ticket. You know, when I first moved to L.A., I've gotten like, I probably got a dozen parking tickets coming here. I never once was remorseful. I was angry, actually. I just pay it off, right? Anytime that sin is described in the Bible... 
it's always defined in relational terms. Unfaithfulness, treason, betrayal, adultery. That's how it's described. It's not breaking of an arbitrary law. It's breaking relationship. You know, um, I, didn't, I didn't grow up in the gentle parenting era. So what that means is I got beat as a kid. Um, and my parents' tool of choice was, you know those moldings around your house that frame your house? That was their choice of uh, you know, punishment and discipline. And uh, I still remember the last whooping that I got. <laughs> You're gonna be shocked how old I was. I was in middle school. Um, you know, my sister and I, we got in a huge fight and that drove my parents crazy, so they called us in the room. They called us in the room, and, but this time I knew something was a little bit, a little bit off because both my parents come in. Usually it's just one of them. And, um, you know, how it goes is that, you know, you get on all your fours and you stick up your butt in the air, and then they, you know, they would proceed to, to whip me. Um, the vibe was very different, and instead of telling me and uh, my sister to get on all fours, my parents got on all fours. And then they handed us the molding. My sister got assigned to my dad. I got assigned to my mom. My mom. And then they said, hit. And you know, like at this point, I'm crying. Like, mom, mom, no. You know, and I, you know, I just give her a gentle tap. And they'll be like, harder. <laughs> you, just, you know, I just like crying. And I'm like hitting my mom. Like this is like reverse psychology at its best. Like I think I need like counseling for this. Like, no ideas, don't get any ideas, parents. If you're, there are any parents here, like, that's really messed up. But it worked. <laughs> like, it worked. Because what my parents were trying to demonstrate is when we fight, it pains them. It hurts them. And now having kids of my own, like, I get it. I understand that strategy. I won't use it because I, I, that might be messed up. But, like, I get it. Like, when they fight, it hurts me so much. When we sin, we are grieving the heart of a father who loves us and who wants the best for us. God takes sin very personally. Why? Because he created everything. And not only that, everyone possesses his image. So an offense against another human being is an offense against God. And he takes it very, very personally. That's his image that you're violating. And you see this in parents, right? When their kids get bullied at school, you'll see parents getting more angry than the kids themselves, right? Jane and I, we witnessed this last year. Like, don't mess with Papa Bear and Mama Bear. Like, that is not a good place to be. Like, don't mess with my kids, right? And this is so real when it comes to God. He takes everything deeply personally because he made everything. He made everyone. And so David understood this. That's why he, in verse 3, this is what he says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was broken because he realized what he did. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. But he understood what it meant for God and to God. And this is why even after this massive failure 
we can still say he was a man after God's own heart. See, more than the consequences, which would be devastating for David, like he will suffer tremendously for what he did. He didn't want to forfeit communion with God. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, it's interesting to note, Psalm 51 was written a year after the actual incident. You know, if you read Nathan's confrontation, David actually repented of his sins, and God forgave him of his sins. But David didn't forget. You know, this idea of forgive and forget is a divine concept. It's something that God is able to do. He forgives and he forgets, right? We hear, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. But when it comes to our experience of sin, it's not that easy. We remember. Sometimes it even haunts us. As much as we want to forget, we can't. And that's why he pleads for God's mercy even a year after. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. You know, here as citizens, we make it a point that we preach the gospel of grace every single Sunday. Every single Sunday. So what I'm about to say may sound alarms and it may sound off, but please hear me out. You know, guilt and shame are essential emotions that is necessary for us to grow. Let me say that one more time. Guilt and shame are essential emotions in order for us to grow as Christians. Because when our emotions are working properly, and often they're, they're not, but when they're working, they signal something to us that we're not well. You know, I know many of us here, being from the Eastern culture, in the honor-shame culture, I don't need to tell you what shame is. I think we all know what it is, and we feel it deeply. But there are different types of shame that I want to share with you. James Fowler, a psychologist, shares five different types. The first one is perfectionist shame. Perfectionist shame. This is our compensation for our defects and our deficiencies. This is the type of shame that is unrelenting and exhausting. We're trying to constantly prove ourselves and make up for the defects that we have, right? And I think many of us, we can relate with perfectionist shame. Secondly, racial, socio, or gender-based shame. And many of us, we know what this is like too, being minorities, or being ashamed of who you are. And so what, what do we do here? We deny parts of our identity as being Asian-American, Korean-American, Chinese-American, right, and try to just conform. We're shameful for our heritage or our background. Toxic shame. This is caused by abusive, invasive actions of others. And what this does is it, it makes us hide and isolate ourselves. It warps our sense of self. We can't embrace ourselves because of the injustices that we've experienced. Shamelessness. This is probably the worst one. Right? Where you are, yeah, there's no remorse for what you've done and the harm that you've inflicted on others. And when you think about the different coverings that we try to cover our, our guilt and shame with, there is an association, right, with these types. 
And then he goes on to describe what healthy shame is. This is what he says. Healthy shame is found when there is a healthy acknowledgement of one's own responsibility. It functions as an early warning system signaling that one's worth or that of another may be placed in danger, possibly leading to a diminution of self-respect. Healthy shame. There is a part that shame needs to play in our lives. But we need to know, we, we, we all need to know how shame works in God's economy and in our enemy, the Satan. There's very, very different. Satan uses shame to condemn us. God uses shame to convict us. Fundamental differences. Satan uses to condemn us. God uses to convict us. In conviction, we're compelled to what? Repent. To acknowledge that I did wrong. To turn from sin and then turn to the grace of Jesus. In condemnation, what, what, what it does is, man, I suck. I'm a loser. It's a hopeless and helpless state. There is no solution. Conviction leads us to communion. Condemnation leads us to isolation, both from God and from others. See, brokenness is an essential part of our Christian journey. It helps us to realize our inadequacies and our shortcomings, but then it also shines a light on the sufficient love of Christ. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. We can experience the good work of brokenness if we would bring our broken selves to Jesus to remove the coverings and to say, this is who I am. You know, some of us are here today carrying heavy, heavy burdens. It might be something you've done in the past. It might be something you've done this past weekend. It may be a failed relationship. It may be a decision that you made that caused the suffering of another person. It may be an ongoing addiction. And you're stuck in this cycle of oppressive shame. You've done all that you can to try and cover over it, but nothing's worked. But then there are some of us here who have experienced traumatic injustices. You've been abused, taken advantage of. And there's a shame that is associated with that as well. It's like a stain that is following you everywhere. It's, you just rub it and rub it and it won't come off. And it colors everything about your life. And it hinders you from proceeding in healthy relationship with others. I believe there are people here that are there in that place, captive. And nothing has worked. I believe that God is inviting you this afternoon to bring your broken selves to him. But if you do, I just want to give you just an honest fair warning. If you truly want to hear, heal and be restored, initially it may lead you to more discomfort and more pain. Why? Because we have to relive and look at ourselves again, truly, as we are. And we have to look at what has happened to us once again. But hear me, please, very closely. It is better then, right, for that initial pain than to be in this oppressive cycle of shame that is inescapable. 
And the commitment that Christ has is to walk with you each and every step of the way. To hold your hand. To speak to you his loving kindness. You know, today's title, message title is The Good Shepherd. I mean, it couldn't be adulterer and murder in the children's Bible. David was a shepherd himself. And as a king, he would was called to lead and care for his flock well, and he failed. He failed. That's because David himself was a sheep. And what does sheep do? Sheep wander. Sheep stray. They're not the smartest of animals. And we are all prone to wander. We are all prone to leave the God that we love. But here's the good news. We have a good shepherd who will leave the 99 searching for that one lost one. That's why Jesus says in John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And what does he do? He lays his life down for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows you. He knows what you've been through. He knows what you've done. And he is pursuing you regardless. You know, the amazing thing about the gospel is, yes, Jesus is the good shepherd, but then Jesus will take the form of a lamb. He would lay his life down on that cross as a sacrificial lamb. The cross is the ultimate expression of guilt and shame. He was rejected by everybody, and not just humanity. On the cross, he was rejected by his own father. Why? Because he was absorbing your guilt and my shame. He gave his life to pardon us, to atone for all our mistakes, all our shortcomings, all of our shame. And here's the thing, in his resurrection, when he rose again from the dead, what did he do then? He secured you glory and honor. We are now one with Jesus by faith. So the invitation for us today is to stop running. Stop hiding. Stop trying to cover yourself up and bring your broken self to the good shepherd. He loves you. He wants the best for you. And there is a path to restoration, redemption, and healing. Here as citizens, we want to be a, a community that embraces everyone, where you don't have to feel shame. But at the same time, we want to be a transformed community in relationship to experience real change, real growth, freedom, and victory over our sins. So if you need to talk to someone, you've been carrying this heaviness alone, please come and talk to me. Pastor Jason, when he comes back, any of our staff members will love to be with you. You're not meant to carry this burden on your own. It's too heavy. But God has gifted us with community so that we can carry it together. So I'll be around after service. If you don't feel comfortable after service, you can reach out online. And we'll love to be with you in your journey. We have a good shepherd who wants to be with us and walk with us. And he wants the best for us. And so let's stop pretending, let's stop hiding, and let's come before him. Let's pray. You know, if that's you today and you're feeling the heaviness and it's been following you all along, um, I just want to give you an opportunity, if you're willing, to just pray to God and ask God, I need help.
I am broken. I am messed up. And I need to hear your voice again. I need to hear the news that you have forgiven me, that you love me. And so I just want to give you a moment. If that's you and, and you feel convicted that you can go before God and just, again, uh, just have a heart-to-heart with him and let him know the pain that you're experiencing. So I just want to give you a moment to do that, and I'll close this in prayer. God, we thank you so much for uh, the life of King David, his good parts and ugly parts, because we learned that, that even if we change, even if we struggle, that you remain the same, that your covenant is an everlasting covenant, that your love is permanent, You are so faithful to us. God, I just want to pray for those of us who are feeling uh, convicted or broken this afternoon. God, that your spirit will comfort us. Remind us of your love once again. Remind us of what Christ did for us on that cross. God, we need your comfort and we need your help. So we want to bring our broken selves to you. And we want you to change us from the inside out. Thank you so much for your life, death, and resurrection, what it means for us. You are the author of our faith, and you will perfect it. So God, we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.